Thank you for listening to the Voices of UMass Chan, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Chan Medical School. Welcome to the Voices of UMass Chan. In today's episode, we're focusing on macular degeneration. Dr. Johanna Seddon is a professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences here at UMass Chan Medical School, and she's the director of the Macular Degeneration Center of Excellence in the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at UMass Memorial Health. Dr. Seddon is a physician, a groundbreaking researcher in macular degeneration, and more specifically in the nutritional and genetic epidemiological factors that might influence our sight, our vision, and the overall health of our eyes. Dr. Seddon, welcome. Well, thank you very much and um, appreciate the interest in this important topic. It's so important, right? So let's start just with the you know, basic definition, what is macular degeneration for those of us who may have heard of it, but have not experienced it? Yeah, macular degeneration is a disease that affects the very central part of the retina called the macula. And this is a region in the retina that is responsible for clear, straight ahead central vision. And when the disease occurs, that macula is affected, it degenerates, and it renders individual visually impaired and uh, unable to see clearly straight ahead, drive a car, write, read. And the most devastating thing I hear from my patients is that they can no longer see the faces of the people that they love. Oh, of course. Once you've experienced the joy of vision, it would be so devastating to lose it. How prevalent is macular degeneration? It depends on the stage of the disease. The earliest stages can occur in as many as 25 or 30% of individuals over the age of 75. Oh, wow. Uh, The advanced stages are less prevalent and they occur in six or 7% of people over the age of 75. So this is pretty common, uh, or at least people should be aware of, of the fact that this is fairly prevalent. So can you talk us through, you know, what are some of the earliest warning signs that, that we should be on the lookout for or take note of if we're experiencing? Well, it, it ranges from not even knowing you have it because the earliest or even the intermediate stages of the disease that we see when we look in your eyes uh, as ophthalmologists can go unnoticed by the patient and they might still have 20-20 vision. Then after time, those stages can evolve into the more advanced stages. And then there can be distortion, a straight line is crooked. Like some people say they were driving down the road and the the strip in between the road was was crooked Uh, or they look at a building and the curve is noticeable on the side of the building instead of it being angular it's curved or um, the looking at the words on a piece of paper there are some blank spots right in the center of the vision when trying to read so then that indicates the central visual loss and also some potential fluid buildup causing that irregularity in the vision or this distortion of, we call it a, a fancy term called metamorphopsia, meaning a change in the um, images that you see. So I hear you saying that it's typically in the center part of the vision. So we're not talking peripheral. Correct. Okay. 
when an individual has macular degeneration, the central vision is impaired. The side vision is maintained. However, the side vision is not 2020 vision. It's more like 2200 vision. So it's, it's very good to have it maintained, but it's good enough for navigating, avoiding objects, getting around, but it's not the clear central reading and writing uh, vision. So is it true that there's no cure for macular degeneration? Right now, uh, you know, it depends on how you call a cure. I mean, it's not, it's not reversible. So what would be the typical treatment for somebody? Yeah, the treatment for the advanced stage is an intraocular injection. And this would be for what we call the wet type of macular degeneration to try to dry up the fluid. And the injections are given once a month and then tapered off depending on how the eye responds to that therapy. For the advanced dry type, there are many, many clinical trials now that are going on to determine a therapy for the advanced dry type. Soon there might be one of these treatments that will be FDA approved. So we will have another treatment for the advanced dry type. For the early and intermediate stages, the best treatment is adherence to healthy habits. And that actually applies to all the different stages, early, advanced, and, and intermediate. However, for the early and intermediate, there's no drug or pill mm-hmm. other than a supplement <laughs> containing healthy nutrients. And that is a, a very important message for our patients with macular degeneration is adhering to a healthy lifestyle. This is segues nicely into your own research, which has been so foundational and groundbreaking in this regard. You were the first person to link a person's diet to their risk of developing macular degeneration. So this healthy lifestyle is is not just a good idea overall. It really has quite a profound effect. So yes, the diet has an important role to play in the management of patients with macular degeneration. And we reported the association of dietary lutein and zeaxanthin. These are carotenoids or pigments that are actually present in the macular tissue. So these are present in specific foods like spinach, collard greens, kale, green leafy vegetables in general. And we first reported that in 1994. And now decades later, there are studies that are confirming that association and showing that pills containing these nutrients can be beneficial also. Would you say that the eating, you know, so you gave us some examples of the foods that we would want to have in our diet that would be particularly beneficial for our eye health, dark leafy vegetables. Has, has there, is there any data or what's your opinion regarding supplements versus uh, eating the foods? Is there a difference in the benefit that people see? Well, I would say that diet is most important because Uh, the foods also have many other kinds of nutrients that could be beneficial. And people might fall into um, a habit of saying, well, I'm taking these vitamins, I can eat what I want. I think it should be a combination of both. But if I were to pick one or the other, I'd say the foods are very important. And not only the lutein is zeaxanthin from the dark green leafy vegetables, but also omega-3 fatty acids that you get in fish and nuts like walnuts. These are all very healthy foods. And as a matter of fact, the Mediterranean diet style, 
uh, we found to be beneficial. So that's the vegetables, the fish, uh, legumes, grains, nuts. Um, so combination of that kind of diet is, is helpful for the eyes and, and specifically for macular degeneration. And is there a quantity that people should be eating? Should this be something that we're incorporating into every single meal? It's a pattern wow. of dietary intake that resembles closely the Mediterranean style of eating. Wow. And I'd say fish at least a couple times a week. And if you're snacking, you know, have some nuts, walnuts, eat fruit for dessert. So I think that kind of diet would be beneficial. And if we're doing all those things, would it then be overkill or potentially dangerous to also take a supplement? Or how should people think about that? The recommendation for the supplements is only for individuals who actually have macular degeneration. For the general public, it's the diet and also don't smoke. Don't Smoking is also very harmful for the eyes. Not only macular degeneration, but cataracts too. Mm -hmm. be associated with, it is associated with cataract formation. So for the general public, it's healthy lifestyle, exercise, watching your weight, maintaining this healthy diet. And, and don't smoke. Don't smoke. That's a very big factor. And um, but for the those who actually have been diagnosed with macular degeneration, those are the individuals uh, who are advised to take the supplements, the actual pills containing the antioxidant vitamins and minerals that include lutein, zeaxanthin. Okay, so it would be lutein zeaxanthin, omega-3s, those would be the supplements that people would want. Yes. To and the supplement, supplements also contain vitamin C and vitamin E as well. Okay. That's a really important distinction. I'm glad we took the time to talk about that because I don't want to give people the idea that everyone should be taking no, the supplements. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So um, let's talk about the genetic component of this. It ties into your research quite nicely. Is macular degeneration something that runs in families? Yeah. So it it has a heritable or genetic component. And we evaluated that 20, 30 years ago where we looked at families and family members of people who had the disease were much more high, had higher risk than family members of people who did not have the disease. So we then we knew, aha, there's familial, what's called familial aggregation. So then we went on and managed to get some grants funded after being told in my grant reviews that there's no evidence that this disease is genetic. And we marched on and finally got funding to look at this. And indeed, there's a very strong genetic component. And Many, many, many genes now have been discovered to be related to macular degeneration. Interesting. Are there any in particular that, that you focus on or that you're particularly concerned about? Well, there right now we know there are about 30 some genes and uh, 52 loci that are associated with the disease. We are, our team discovered many of the ones that were initially discovered in terms of the complement immune pathway and rare, rare, what we call rare variants that are very, very strongly related to macular degeneration that increase your risk about 20 times if you have that particular genetic variant. And so that's the strongest genetic factor to date is mm -hmm. this particular rare variant, although rare has a very strong impact in those who are carriers. And it's associated with having more people in your family with this disease 
and progressing at an earlier stage uh, as well. So these findings of these what we call rare variants with very strongly high impact have been leveraged by the companies, industry, pharmaceutical companies to design therapies targeted at these genetic pathways. Those are actually generating a lot of interest and hopefully there will be some therapies evolving from those. And how would the average person find out if they had these, like if, if we were undergoing genetic screening, would these be genes that would show up in that result? No, not necessarily. Yeah. There, uh, There's a lot of discussion about the pros and cons of doing genetic testing in people, typically for macular degeneration. Uh, we've developed prediction models based on having genetic factors as well as the smoking and body mass index and different uh, categories of those, whether normal or abnormal or high or smokers or non-smokers, and then whether uh, you're predisposed genetically or not. And these are called prediction models. So there's, it's, there's a very, very strong association between a high risk score in these models and having the disease and a very high risk score in these models and progressing if yes. you have the early intermediate and then going on to advanced. I think it's just a matter of time before this would be part of the normal screening process, especially if you have a family history of macular degeneration, somebody in the family has it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You'd want to know, you mean, you've done such a, you've given us all such good actionable information that we know through your research results can have a positive impact. Um, so there is this risk assessment calculator that you mentioned. Um, so if you're listening to this conversation and you would like to try it, you will find a link to the risk assessment uh, calculator on the story page associated with this podcast, which is great. It's www.seddenamdriskscore.org. People want to learn more about their own risk. And really another takeaway from this conversation, I think, is to get your eyes examined and Speaking with an ophthalmologist, I'm sure you'll agree with that, but just the sense that people might have some early symptoms or early um, warning signs that they wouldn't necessarily know about. Right. And it's also particularly important to know your family history. And if you have an aunt, uncle, mother, father, grandmother, grandfather who had macular degeneration or sibling, it would be advisable to have your eyes examined, especially if you're age 55 or older. And yeah, and how frequently should people be getting eye exams? Uh, maybe younger than 55 and also over 55? Well, younger than 55, it would be every few years. And if some problem is detected, then it could be more frequent after 55 at 60 or so it's advisable to be checked once a year if say macular degeneration is detected and you have a strong family history that could be twice a year okay yeah this is definitely something that you can you can do something about right you can take a positive step and um, try to at least know about where you stand with your eye health so i want to talk part of your research focused on twin studies I'd love for you to talk to this a little bit, um, talk about this a little bit more. So the, the goal of these twin studies was to tease out, you know, how much of this risk is genetic and how much might be environmental or behavior based. So what did you find? Well, that's a very, very important topic because a twin study is a very classical way to dissect what part of a disease is genetic and what parts environmental or behavioral non-genetic. So we launched this twin study many years ago. It was the first population-based study of 
monozygotic and dizygotic twins. And we found that the disease is highly heritable. In other words, monozygotic or identical twins, the same genetic makeup, some of them were different in terms of their eyes. And one twin might've had advanced disease, the other intermediate or early disease. So we then looked at these, what we call discordant twins and found that the difference in these twins was their smoking and their diet. And that's what explained why there were differences, even though they had the same genetic uh, susceptibility. But stepping back a bit, what we found is that the disease is highly heritable. It was up to 70% of the disease can be heritable, especially for the advanced stages. It's an important environmental behavioral component up to 30% too. So it's both, it's what we call complex. Genetic and non-genetic nature and nurture are both playing roles in this disease. Well, thank you for that. That's a great clarification. And just another reason to remind people diet so important, you know, leafy, dark vegetables, lutein, zeaxanthin, omega-3s, don't smoke, exercise, all the things that, you know, you should be doing anyway. Right. And it's yeah, just now, maintaining a healthy weight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now it's just good to know that that's really benefiting our eyes uh, as right. well. Mm-hmm. So in the couple minutes that we have left, um, I want to just talk a little bit about your own career. You've had such a fascinating career trajectory Um, And if I have this right, you were one of um, just a handful of women in your medical school class at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, Can you take us back to that and tell us how you were first exposed to ophthalmology as your chosen specialty? Yes, um, I had a very exciting, rigorous, demanding summer job at a local hospital, Mercy Hospital, when I was attending medical school. And I was actually acting as a scrub nurse. That was the terminology for individual who would assist the surgeons in the operating room. So I was trained to assist a multitude of disciplinary, uh, a wide range of specialists, including orthopedic surgeons, cardiovascular surgeons, neurosurgeons, and- You were seeing it all. I was seeing it all. And then one day I was assigned to a female ophthalmologist and um, she had this small little tray of little tiny instruments. And, you know, compared to the orthopedic surgeons with hammers and chisels and I was able to assist her on some cataract surgeries and talk to her. And she was so glad that she had chosen that field. And she was um, uh, very optimistic and supportive and a very early mentor in terms of um, thinking about ophthalmology. So -hmm. that's how I first got introduced to it. You probably haven't looked back. Any regrets? No, not really. I mean, it was um, when I, I subsequently, when I was still a student, I actually did an informal survey of various specialties, physicians in different specialties and uh, their satisfaction ratings. And it was a questionnaire that I developed myself and then scored. And um, I, unfortunately, I didn't publish it, but um, it turned out that the ophthalmologists were ranked among the highest in terms of satisfaction. If you were to do it over again, is this, would you pick this field? 
those kinds of questions. Um, balancing, you know, work and family life. And um, so, you know, that was another, another reason, you know, so that I looked uh, for ophthalmology and residencies. Fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing that, Dr. Seddon. We're so um, happy to learn more about your career trajectory and to have you here at UMass Chan. Thank you for your time today. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed talking with you and I hope that it helps uh, some individuals who are listening to try to prevent macular degeneration and how to manage it if you have it. It absolutely will. I know I learned a lot and I'm sure a lot of people did as well. So thank you for listening to the Voices of UMass Chan. I'm your host, Jennifer Berryman. We hope you'll subscribe to the Voices of UMass Chan podcast wherever you listen and follow us on social media at UMass Chan. Follow us at UMass Chan on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. On YouTube, find us at UMass Chan Medical School.